And now hear the word of God from Jeremiah chapter 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field and the crops of your land, and it will burn and not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices, and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants and prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord, it's God. I responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Cut off your hair and throw it away. 
Take up a lament on the barren heights, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth and the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcass of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. What a cheerful passage. Some feedback here. I don't know. Keep on talking. There it goes. So, uh, you know, feel good message this morning for all of you. It is good to be with you. Good to be back here preaching. I know I've only been gone for one week out of the country, but it feels like it's been a long time. So I'm so glad to be here. But I just want to share really quickly. Um, at the TPAC, which was a peace education center, towards the end of our time there, I was just asking the kids, kids, do you have any questions? Anything you want to ask us about America or just about life or anything at all? And there were a couple of them asked a couple of questions, but there's one kid in particular raised his hand. And I said, yeah, what question do you have? And they said, when are you coming back? Right? And my heart went, oh, I don't know. Tomorrow? Every day? <laughs> there's something powerful. There's something incredible and something amazing about God allowing us to be his hands and feet. He doesn't need us to do it. God can share his love and encouragement and fix things with those children without miles, without me, without you, without any of us. He can do it. He's that powerful. But there's something so incredible when he allows us to be a part of it. Does that make sense? And so we thank God for that. And I just had to share that one little tidbit. This past week, we also had an amazing VBS. And it was one of those VBSs where I loved my wife has had work all week. And usually when she works really hard during the day, the last thing she wants to do is go do more stuff. But when she came here to VBS every night, she was rejuvenated and refreshed because it was so encouraging to be around these amazing children, to teach them about Jesus and to, to see their faces and to be a part of it. Our volunteers were absolutely incredible. They were dancing, they were singing, they were making crafts, cooking food, taking care of our kids. They were awesome. I'm just saying, you volunteers were the best I've ever seen. You guys were awesome. They were also playing a little too much aggressive dodgeball when the kids weren't around. <laughs> I'm just saying, my wife is a ninja at dodgeball. All right? there was, there was, we were playing some crazy dodgeball in between when the kids weren't there. I'm just saying, but it was fun. If you missed it, guys, make sure you volunteer next year. It really was one of the highlights of the year. So make sure you sign up to volunteer next year and be a part of it. It was incredible. We're preaching out of the book of Jeremiah. And once again, it was a, it's a fun text, right? 
And so what we do at Waypoint Church, in case you don't know, if you're not aware of, is we like to go, we go through whole books of the Bible, and we like to go through books of the Bible that go kind of back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So the last series that we were in, we were in the book of Luke. Now we're in the book of Jeremiah. So we like to cover it, and then we have a plan, if you've been here for the past eight years almost, and you can be here for the next two, that within that 10-year span, we're going to have preached through every book of the Bible. So we don't want to skip over hard passages. This is a hard passage. Am I right? When you heard that read, you were probably like, what's he going to say today? Because it's a tough topic. It's one, everyone's favorite topic, right? Judgment. Everybody's like, what? Do we have to talk about judgment? It's in the Bible. So we're going to talk about it. And Peter did a great job last week introducing our new sermon series in the book of Jeremiah. But today we're in Jeremiah chapter 7. And to understand this book of Jeremiah, his message of judgment against Judah, there's really no better place than this famous sermon in chapter 7. This passage is like a one-stop shop for all things Jeremiah and judgment. So understanding what's happening here will help you better grasp what's going on in the rest of the book. So yay, I feel a good sermon about judgment. For real though, Jeremiah is sent into the temple courts to accuse God's people of their false religion and idolatrous practices. And while we feel so disconnected to those times, and honestly, most of us, we look at the Israelites as if they're idiots sometimes, don't we? We're like, how could they? They're so dumb. It's like when we look at the Israelites in the wilderness. Really, dude? That's what you're going to do? After the whole water thing, you're going to not follow God? What's wrong with you? And over and over again, we're like, how could you be so dumb? I don't want you to miss this. There is a deep connection to this word of warning from Jeremiah to see what, and I also want us to see what Jesus does with it later and see how it connects to us. You with me? This time period of Jeremiah is sandwiched between the fall of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire. The Bible Project says this about this time, that it was politically turbulent time in Judah's history in which the nation grasped for any sense of security. This period birthed the popular belief that the temple itself was some sort of guarantee of God's presence and protection as if he were bound to it despite their disobedience and corruption. So the people's reasoning came from the traditions that they heard about David's covenant promises with, with God in 2 Samuel, where God promises David's kingdom and throne will be established forever. So they had this confidence, as long as we have the temple, David and Solomon established the temple, we're safe. Even with his rising super mega powers out there. Then they saw what happened to Judah, the northern kingdom. And they were, then they saw that Judah was spared the fate of what happened to the northern kingdom. So to the people, the temple became kind of a false assurance of God's protective power. Kind of like, a, hey, we have a temple, we have a good luck charm. Or they trusted in the temple as their means of protection. They felt they were untouchable in a way, even though there were great powers around them. But they couldn't be more wrong. This was God sends Jeremiah to the temple to proclaim this message. He says, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty of God Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust and accept the words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are use- worthless. And the issue here is that the people will do all the temple rituals while giving no concern or true heart and, t- and ethical demands of the covenant. 
Namely, taking care of the vulnerable, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow that was suffering in their midst. They were breaking the Ten Commandments and were wrapped up in idolatry. Yet they kept on going about this external ritual, external worship, as if God was pleased by it. Jeremiah was calling for radical reformation and spiritual renewal. If that didn't happen, he was saying there was a coming judgment. And this outline of this judgment was given to them in Deuteronomy 28, namely exile from the land and a casting away from the presence of God. Do you see what's happening here? They're basically going against everything God stands for, yet claiming his protection by taking refuge in the rituals of the temple itself. They're even offering worship to other gods in the temple and becoming just like the other nations around them. In 12 through 15, verses 12 through 15, Jeremiah reminds the people of what happened at Shiloh, the first permanent place of the tabernacle, less than 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And it was well known to Jeremiah's hearers that worship at Shiloh had been shut down and overrun by the Philistines because of Israel's chronic sin. And what Jeremiah is saying is, since God destroyed a city that housed the tabernacle and the ark in the past, how could Jerusalem be spared the same fate? In other words, you're putting your hope in this idea that the temple is here. That doesn't mean the judgment won't come to you. He's saying judgment is coming, and this is a plea from a heartfelt prophet. This is Jeremiah's plea to his people. This is a pastoral plea to say, stop practicing empty rituals. Stop thinking that because you attend church, you're okay. When you exploit the poor, when you practice injustice, when you care nothing about the heart of God and what he cares for, it's not going to protect you because of your empty rituals. Verse 16 comes. It says something very weird. It says, do not pray for these people. Huh? If anything, these people need prayer on prayer. Right? They need like prayer cards and walks and rosaries and candles and everything else that comes with praying. Whatever means of prayer they can get, they need. But it says, so do not pray for these people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Now, what this is, and it's confusing, and it's just, but what you need to understand is that this is an intentional throwback to the story of Moses and Israel's golden calf incident in Exodus 32. There, Moses interceded successfully for Israel after their blatant covenant violation. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Moses comes down, and there's a golden calf, and you get, once again, you're thinking, Israelites, what are you doing? Golden calf, Jesus, God, Moses, water, all, come on. But that's what they were doing. And so Moses intercedes. He prays and God relents. But here God's intention not going to allow Jeremiah to intercede for Judah. Why? Well, let's go forward to verses 17 and 18. It says, do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers light the fire. And the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. Now, this description brings to mind a, a preparation for a wholesome little house in the prairie time meal. Seems like a picturesque fall day until you realize they're doing this to worship the queen of heaven, an astral deity the pagan nations worship, the other nations, the other regions, other, other tribes, other kingdoms in that area would worship. Idolatry has so infiltrated Judah that whole families were engaged in cultic worship of false gods. It wasn't only a misplaced confidence in the temple on like a national level. 
It was demonic idol worship on a family level. Judah, like Israel, had become so thoroughly corrupt that there was nothing left for them but divine judgment. They had completely forsaken the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob. Their sacrifices were meaningless because they didn't trust and obey. They didn't know God. Jeremiah 7, 22-23 says, For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. You see, God was never calling his people to empty rituals and burnt offerings. He was calling them to relationship, to know him and to obey his commands out of love and devotion. He makes it clear that what he wanted from the covenant relations was simple trust and obedience. The sacrifices were to be offered on the basis of faith in the God who had delivered them out of Egypt. Guys, they were supposed to be like children, called to follow and listen and obey and rely on God. But they didn't. They became just like the nations around them. They worshiped fake gods out of their own evil desires. Despite all the warnings of the prophets, they persisted in their sin. Now, before, when I gave a sermon earlier about this idea of the Israelites and their sin in the book of Judges, why they kept on giving in, and I won't go into all that again, but the idea is it was by nature their sin in their own hearts manifested through all the other worship that other, other nations were practicing. They were looking at, hey, that nation might be becoming a superpower. Well, let's do what they do. Or they were saying that nation worshiped their God by robbing people. I like robbing people because I like money. Let's do that. Or they did stuff by cult prostitution. That seems better than what I'm doing. Let's go with that route. They were worshiping based out of evil desires that manifested outwardly in their, their taking on the religions of the countries around them or the people around them. And despite all the warnings of the prophets, they persisted in their sin. The time had come to hand them over to destruction, which is how Jeremiah ends this sermon. Judah's social injustice and idolatry tragically came together just outside the city walls of Ben-Hinnom. There they built a high place of Topheth and burned their children as sacrifices to please pagan gods like Molech. Child sacrifice, explicitly forbidden in the Torah, they were practicing. In Jeremiah's sermon, he's clear. He's saying, this is detestable. How far have you fallen? Jeremiah proclaimed that that valley would now become the site of their destruction. It will be renamed the Valley of Slaughter, for they will bury the dead of Topheth until there is no more room. He's pronouncing judgment over the people. He's saying this most evil site that you have created will be the very spot that you'll receive, you see the results of God's judgment. Thy image is of bodies that will remain unburied and left for food for scavengers, which was an indescribable horror for the Israelites. This is what happens when Babylon captures them. This actually happens. The place of Topheth became the valley of slaughter. This judgment came in the form of the Babylonian exile. And with that, Jeremiah concludes his sermon. And the hearer is left with images of of bodies and of death and of judgment and silencing of the gladness in the streets of Jerusalem. And the point is inescapable. All these empty rituals will come to an end. The temple that they rely on will become destroyed in judgment. 
Now, this isn't the last time we see this idea of judgment. And Jeremiah 7 is the last time we hear about this particular idea. Bible scholar Whitney Willard makes the following connection. The valley of Ben-Hinnom was translated into Aramaic as Gehinnom, which was later translated into the Greek Gehenna, a term you might be familiar with. I don't know if you are. Are you guys familiar with that term? It's the New Testament word for hell. So in the Jewish mind, Gehenna was the place of eternal punishment of the wicked. Does that make sense? This term that was used for this valley that was a place of most evil that Israel committed then became a place of judgment, became the term, that image became the term for New Testament word hell. Peter Craigie says it's actually the primary metaphor Jesus used to talk about final judgment. Jesus' understanding would have been shaped largely in part of this passage in Jeremiah when he talks about judgment and hell. So for Jesus, hell or Gehenna is final judgment reserved for those who, like Judah, persistently reject God's call to repentance. It's for those seeking false security in something other than faith in God's gracious provision so they can pursue idols and continue the destructive ways of life. So speaking of Jesus then, can someone tell me what part of this passage of Jeremiah 7 does Jesus quote in his life? Anybody? What part of Jeremiah 7 does Jesus quote somewhere in his ministry? Say that again? Den of, Den of robbers. That's correct. Good job. If I had a sticker, I'd give you a sticker. <laughs> Den of robbers. In Matthew 21, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem. Israel is back in the promised land. The temple is rebuilt. But once again, ritualistic worship is rampant and social justice is totally neglected. As a matter of fact, there are money changers in the temple taking advantage of all the poor and vulnerable. They're turning a profit at the expense of the weak. And in this context, Jesus storms into the temple courts, he turns over tables, he drives out the money changers, and he quotes Jeremiah 7. He says, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Right, Jeremiah 7, do you see it? Do you see the connection? There wouldn't have been an Israelite in in the temple that day that missed what Jesus was saying through this symbolic reenactment. Remember, Jeremiah 7 was a popular and well known text of scripture. Jesus was saying that Yahweh was coming to destroy the temple as an act of judgment against Israel's empty religious practices and covenantal unfaithfulness. He was saying Gehenna was reserved as a result of their idolatry and lack of caring for the vulnerable. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is pointing back to to Jeremiah 7. He's saying the judgment, guys, of Jeremiah 7, that's your judgment here right now. You're doing the exact same thing. Temple's been restored to you. You're back from exile. This is what God's blessing was. Through the later prophets, we saw this happen. They rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt. You should be celebrating. You should be doing covenantal righteousness. But instead, you're doing the exact same thing that the book of Jeremiah was doing. So he's pointing to that exact same judgment. This is history repeating itself here. The people were given the land back. The temple restored. They were committing the same atrocities. Do we see history also repeating itself now? Now, I know some people will say, uh, I don't worship Molech Lawrence, or I don't, like, there's no, like, Poles or Baal or anything. I don't know who those people are, Lawrence. I don't do that. We don't have idols. I don't have a little statue or anything. But Francis Schaeffer once identified peace and prosperity as the true American idols. Sorry, Kelly Clarkson. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. 
I like Kelly Clarkson. All right. But seriously, this is what Francis Schaeffer says. Personal peace means just to be let alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Personal peace means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime, regardless of what the result will be in the lifetimes of my children and grandchildren. Affluence means an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity, a life made up of these of things, things and more things, a success judged by an ever higher level of material abundance. Can I say something? Our culture has let the idols of personal peace and prosperity take over the temple and often make our temple worship meaningless. In other words, all throughout America, people may attend church, throw a prayer out there, all worshiping at the idols of personal peace and prosperity hoping that their prayers and rituals will just grant them what their idols demand from them. Can I say that again? In other words, all throughout America, people may attend church or throw a prayer out there all while worshiping at the idols of personal peace and prosperity, hoping that their prayers and rituals will just grant them what their idols demand from them. We even sacrifice our children at these idols like the Israelites did. And I'm not just talking about abortion, Although I am talking about that too. I'm saying how often does our drive for success and prosperity motivate us with our children or by living vicariously through them? Or how about the systems of injustice that we continue to promote that lead to people feeling helpless enough to face the sacrifice of their children? It's easy to point fingers and blame others, but we need to look at the idols of our own heart and see how history is repeating itself. Our culture, our society, our churches, our hearts need to hear this temple sermon. And I know it's hard. I know it's not a message of judgment that is well received in this day and age. But it's a message of love and of pleading. To say, because there's so much more than the idols that you pursue. And the last thing we want is for you to experience Gehenna true separation from God. Jesus also offered an alternative message to all who are willing to listen to his own words, to listen to his words. Jesus' own body as a true temple of God would be destroyed on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for rebellious covenant breakers like us. He received the divine punishment for the breaking of the covenant. He was then raised on the third day because he conquered death by his sacrifice. Now all who call on his name, all who trust him, all who accept his free gift of relationship and righteousness belong to the Father in meaningful covenant relationship. We now have the ability to worship him in spirit and in truth. No longer giving into the idols of our age, instead living new. These new lives result in the kind of things that God has always wanted from Israel. True worship, acts of justice, and obedience to his words. So that, what hap- so that what happens in the temple is what happens in the world around us. Justice, mercy, love, and true worship. All signs of the kingdom. You see, we are all covenant breakers. We all fall victim. We all worship at idols. John Calvin says our hearts are little idol factories. But the free gift of Jesus 
is an offering of a relationship that is so different from the idols and the meaningless idols that we pursue that we think will provide life and lasting satisfaction, but never does. Because all idols turn to dust. But Jesus' love lasts forever. My people, he, this judgment, this terrible judgment that came upon the Israelites, that is still pronounced upon us as covenant rule breakers, well, here's what happened to that judgment. It came again, but it came into the body of Jesus. He was the temple that was then destroyed because of our covenant breaking. And now in him, and because of him, and through him, we have righteousness, we have belonging, we have membership into a covenant family. And we can live the life that God's called us to live. And guys, let me tell you, it is beautiful. It might not be perfect for us at times. It might not match up to the cultural expectations of prosperity. It might not match up to the idea of personal peace. It actually promotes the opposite. It promotes peace, but not a personal peace. It promotes peace that comes from a community and from a kingdom. From belonging to something bigger than you. It promotes prosperity, but not material wealth that goes away. It promotes prosperity because you now are known and you're loved and you have purpose forever. My people heed the warning of Jeremiah. Let's look and evaluate our own hearts. Let's not let history repeat itself. Let's cast out our idols and look at and be, truly evaluate the idols of our own heart and worship our one true God. Not with empty rituals, but our hearts full of devotion and obedience. Showing mercy, fighting for justice, living in truth, and obeying in love. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for God, the work of Jesus Christ. That terrible judgment, the judgment that was proclaimed, the judgment that is, was mentioned and talked about in Jeremiah 7, that is the judgment that was meant for us. But Christ, in his goodness, God, in your love, you put that judgment upon Jesus. So that's not ours. That is not our future. That is not our reality any longer. And instead, you've given us the ability and the desire to live a life of love and mercy and justice. May we do so. May we not put our hope in empty rituals. May we not put our hope in good luck charms. But let us put our hope in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name that we pray. Amen.